You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a new court filing says Musk's buyout deal expected to close by October 28th, but not a done deal by any means. We're going to tell you what the holdups are now. Plus, Google shows off its new collection of gadgets, including new phones and a watch, even teasing a new tablet. How does it all stack up to Apple? We'll take you to the Made by Google event. And a car that drives itself was supposed to be the future, but the reality for self-driving cars seems to be getting further away. Will they even exist in our lifetime? Is this industry a $100 billion bust? We'll discuss. Let's get into this Musk Twitter and the latest back and forth. The deal could potentially close at the end of the month, but Twitter saying not necessarily so fast. Bloomberg's own uh, Kurt Wagner has been going back and forth now for months. Kurt, you know, what's the holdup now? Why can't they just say, let's do it? Yeah, well, uh, there's a huge distrust factor, Emily. You have to keep that in mind as we're talking about this, right? Because a few days ago, Elon said, hey, let's do the original deal at the original price. And Twitter didn't jump on that immediately, which kind of tells you something, right? Because it seemed like the two were, were kind of meeting where they had originally thought they were going to in April. And today we learned that, you know, there's been a hang up around some of the language in, uh, you know, what Elon ultimately said was that there would be a debt contingency, right? That, that, that wasn't in the original uh, agreement. And now he's saying, Hey, um, you know, I have the debt it's there. And Twitter is basically saying, prove it, show us, because we're not going to sign anything until we have, uh, you know, a, a legal uh, document here. And so in the last hour or so, the Musk team has said, hey, we want to stay this trial. We want to we want to pause this thing. And the Twitter team just responded not all that long ago, maybe 10, 15 minutes ago to say, um, we don't want to do that. And now it's up to the judge as to whether or not they're going to, you know, put this thing on pause or, or continue. What's the likelihood the debt contingency would actually become an issue? That's a great question. And as far as 
as we can tell, a lot of the commitments that Elon got with, uh, you know, these, these debt commitments from the banks back in April and May, you know, those are, as far as we know, still still good. And so Elon has been saying, well, hey, you know, Twitter is essentially dragging their feet. Like there, there's no reason that this debt isn't going to come through. Um, but, you know, again, if you're Twitter, all you've seen is this guy kind of play games with you and, and change his mind and flip flop. And so that's where I think this trust thing comes in, right? Is even if it, there is a high likelihood the debt is indeed there, um, it, clearly Twitter is is very nervous or un, uncomfortable with accepting that and moving forward. Now, it also came out that Musk tried to negotiate a lower price for the deal. And, and this was, as I understand it, weeks ago, Twitter said no, not surprisingly, but right. he actually did come back to them uh, earlier than we thought and said, hey, maybe I, I actually want to do this. Yeah, there, uh, his lawyer um, actually issued a, a public statement today that said that, um, you know, the two sides had talked about uh, lowering that, that deal price, which again is $54.20 per share, and that Twitter had actually offered a, a slightly lower deal. He said that that cut billions of dollars off the price, and that Elon ultimately said no because there were other kind of requirements or stipulations with, with that uh, price reduction. Now, we're kind of at that stage, Emily, where both sides and both lawyers are, are really kind of throwing everything they can at one another in public here. And, and so it's a little bit, uh, uh, you know, we're tr still trying to figure out exactly how that negotiation may have uh, played out. But again, on the record from Elon Musk's lawyer basically saying Twitter tried to lower this by billions. Musk said no um, because he didn't like whatever stipulations were included with that. All right. Well, it seems to be an hour by hour, letter by letter, tweet by tweet situation. Yes. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner, thank you for continuing to follow it all for us. For the fourth time this year, Peloton is laying off a significant number of employees. CEO Barry McCarthy told staff today it's part of the effort to save the struggling fitness maker. Roughly 500 Peloton workers being let go now. This is about 12% of the workforce. year, Meta's market cap has plunged from over a trillion dollars to just a few hundred million. Shares of the social media giant collapsing some 60% over the last year, meaning the Facebook parent now accounts for less than 1% of the S&P 500, the lowest since 2015. What does it signal about the company's future? Let's ask our next guest, Chris Kelly. He is Facebook's former chief privacy officer, its first general counsel, and head of global public policy. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. So, of course, market cap isn't everything, but it's astounding to, to look at those numbers. Do you think we're seeing a changing of the guard happen before our very eyes, whereby Meta's influence and power will be significantly diminished relatively I mean, I think over the longer term? There's, there's there's obviously a lot of market concern about the direction um, uh, that the company's going, that, that the move to the metaverse is a focus, the name change, all of these different things that have gone into you know, what the what the street's assessment of the business prospects of the company are in the long term. And so that has obviously weighed on the stock quite extensively. Um, in the long run, the company is well 
position, I think, in, in general, but needs to, to, to figure out what it's going to emphasize in terms of how they're going to continue to make, you know, great profits and how to, you know, lead this transition into the metaverse, which is one of the things that they've articulated as the, as the you know, the, the, the main goal of the company by changing the name. Um, you know, in the meantime, they, they have a whole bunch of these different businesses that operate extraordinarily well, and they're, they're going to need to make the case um, more to the street about, uh, about how those have growth prospects and, and ultimately that should re, you know result in a re recovery in the market cap over time but you know this is the way that the, the markets measure uh, companies these days it's always a it's always a challenge meantime you've got the supreme court taking a look at section 230 how big a blow could that be for meta if the the, the power of that law is eroded or erased yeah, I mean, Section 230 has has had a great deal of power, I think, in protecting um, the reasonable business decisions of all companies in the space, not just, you know, Facebook meta. Um, and, and the threats to that are very real right now. Um, the the upholding of the, the Texas law by the Fifth Circuit, the upholding of the Florida law um, in, the, in the 11th Circuit so far, um, there's just a whole bunch of kind of wacky stuff from traditional First Amendment jurisprudence going on right now in the courts because of the way that they've been packed. Um, and from there, you know, the, the the companies have to be very focused on this. Um, I, I think that there's been a lot of good commentary that says that that the companies might end up engaging in, in kind of more um, takedowns of, of improper behavior, even more takedowns of improper behavior, if there were to be some sort of repeal of Section 230 or, or, or limitation of it by the interpretation of these statutes, which pretty clearly both conflict with Section 230 um, and and the First Amendment in a lot of these cases too. So I, I think that that's an it's an ongoing worry for the companies and that they're watching it very closely. But you know, Facebook and and Facebook Meta, um, Google in their you know in their YouTube division, um, all, all sorts of the different companies that that are offering media um, and and also content, um, you know, a uh, user generated content, have been adapting their policies to to get to some sort of uh, of stasis, which is I, I think okay right now, um, but they, they might have to change it pretty radically if their protections are repealed. Meantime, you've got federal regulation, you know, that could potentially come with this Klobuchar-Grassley law, but there's this market cap provision, as I understand it, and Facebook wouldn't even qualify it because, you know, in terms of its market size, it's too small. You've got Lita Khan and the FTC um, scrutinizing Facebook from another direction. And, you know, some of the, you know, let's, let's say Facebook uh, uh, defenders would say Facebook is getting an undue amount of scrutiny for the size, um, at least if you look at the market size of the company today. What do you think about that? It the idea that Facebook is a you know is, is a monopolist exercising you know unjust uh, unallowable monopoly power to either maintain a monopoly or to gain a monopoly has always been a pretty far fetched vision. Um, a, a whole bunch of people who just didn't like some decisions that the company was making. Um, you know the, the antitrust law is supposed to to uh, protect competition, not competitors. And Facebook has had some competitors who are who are complaining over time, and some smaller companies who would like to get into the field. But the, the idea that, that, that they're exercising this sort of bottleneck control that's the historic worry of antitrust law has just always been incredibly difficult, which is why Judge Boesberg you know, 
know, dismissed the suit in the first instance, that the FTC's, you know, you know, uh, pleadings were sort of conclusory on that front. He came back and he let the lawsuit pursue with regard to the federal government. The state's, you know, lawsuit was dismissed in its entirety. They're on appeal right now, but I don't think that appeal will be successful um, ultimately. And so it's, it's a, it's a, and if you look at the things that they wanted to go after Facebook for the acquisition of Instagram, the acquisition of WhatsApp, um, there's a real read of those as more defensive against other big players in the industry like Apple and Google who control the mobile operating systems um, at the time. And, and so it, it, it's, it's one of those things where from a traditional antitrust law perspective, it was always a pretty far-fetched case. And, um, you know, it's proceeding now, but after, you know, some significant, um, you know, kind of hand slapping uh, by a, a fairly good and, you know, principled uh, traditional antitrust judge um, in, in D.C. That said, Facebook still has a massive cultural and societal impact. We were just speaking with Frances Haugen, the you know now famous uh, Facebook whistleblower, and she expressed her concern that, you know, especially with Sheryl Sandberg leaving, that Mark Zuckerberg still only really has Mark Zuckerberg to hold him accountable. Take a listen to what she had to say. You know, Mark has surrounded himself with people who tell him the same kinds of stories over and over again. You know, Facebook is just a mirror. It doesn't have responsibility. All these things that we're complaining about have always been present. We're just showing them to people. We don't, we don't play any role in this. We have no power. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I do think that there's a degree to which, um, you know, Facebook as a gatherer of, um, of, of, of cultural expression is merely reflecting uh, what, what is going on in reality. But the idea that it shapes it instead is something that the company has, has embraced in its research internally, as, as a lot of the documents that Francis Hagen put out showed um, that, that, you know, I, I do think that the company should be more transparent about that research and that they should be engaged in a dialogue saying, look, we understand that, that there are challenges um, to the change that social media um, presents uh, to the way that people traditionally experience media. And, and we're, we're trying to lead them. And, and, and now, you know, moving into the metaverse, we want to make sure that, that safety and, you know, and, and sort of mental health as people experience these platforms is, is part of the mission. Um, and doing that in a good way is part of the mission. You know, I, I think I've, I've seen some pretty good action on that front um, from the company in the, as they, as the metaverse pivot has continued to happen hmm. um, on, on that front. And, and I think that, that, you know, the, the fact that a lot of these documents have come out and have revealed internal research um, uh, in the company uh, have, has been mostly a, a, a cleansing opportunity for the company to, to talk about these things more openly. Uh, the, Francis's point seems to be that the company shouldn't be hiding these. And I, and I think that that's mostly right. I kind of ask your thoughts about Elon Musk and Twitter. I'm curious, what you think the risks are. Does Twitter uh, and Twitter under Elon Musk attract more Facebook-like problems because it's run by a sole and very public billionaire? You know, his commentary about how simple this could be and you just, you know, reinstate some of these figures, you just allow, you know, the, we, we want to go to the limits of free speech in, in, in you know, law in America where we're going to try to step back, seem a lot more like what 
you know, people like Francis Huggin are, are, are accusing Mark Zuckerberg of than what has actually happened at Facebook and Meta. And there's a real danger. And Elon's commentary on this has been simplistic and um, and, and, and ill-informed in most cases, um, almost as ill-informed as some of the stuff that he put out recently about, you know, effectively Russian propaganda about Ukraine. A lot of these commentary, there are areas where he just doesn't have a lot of expertise. And look, I, I, I drive a Tesla. I was an investor in SpaceX. I'm mostly a believer in Elon Musk and, and in his ability in certain areas. But the, the way that he has, you know, roundly dismissed, you know, years of research and thoughtfulness in Twitter's content policies and in terms of ways to approach these difficult matters um, doesn't bode well for an Elon Musk run Twitter. And so, I mean, if it if it ends up descending into 4chan, um, it's not something that's ever going to be as valuable as he needs it to be. All right. Well, that's quite a, you know, but comparison there. Uh, certainly much remains to be seen. Chris Kelly, uh, Facebook's former chief privacy officer. Good to have you back here on the show, Chris, uh, and hearing you weigh in. Thank you. All right, coming up, the myth of the driverless car. We're gonna talk about why a future where you can relax behind the wheel is still pretty far out. That's our big take. Next, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Investors have bet $100 billion on the self-driving car industry, but how close are we really to truly seeing them on the road? Well, driverless car engineer and Pronto CEO Anthony Lewandowski says this future is years, if not decades away. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin spoke to him and joins us now for more details on what that means exactly. And if that name sounds familiar, Max, of course, Anthony Lewandowski, I feel like we have to say at the start, was indicted for charges of theft and and stealing trade secrets from Google. Uh, He served a few months in prison. Um, 
What's he up to now? So, yeah, Lewandowski is a very well-known figure in this field and, as you said, extremely controversial. So he is kind of the guy who kicked the whole thing off. He uh, created the prototype that became Google's driverless car. Then, as you said, when he went to Uber, he uh, was in the middle of this very messy uh, $2 billion lawsuit that ended um, you know, with money being paid and also this, this indictment. And then he was pardoned by uh, former President Trump. Uh, he's back, and he has kind of turned critic, which is very interesting because he was probably, you know, one of the most outspoken boosters in the industry, particularly one of the people, you know, pushing towards commercialization of these robo-taxis. And what he's saying now, basically, is that when you look at the progress that the industry has made, when you look at what Waymo and Cruise and some of these smaller companies that have raised huge amounts of money have done, you know, it isn't a whole lot. It's a handful of cars in a handful of cities. They're still extremely restricted, and you're still getting you know, all of these sort of videos on YouTube and elsewhere on social media of driverless cars um, behaving badly or weird or, or whatever. And, and so there are a lot of reasons uh, to, to have skepticism about the industry. And, it's, and, and an, yet another one is, you know, this pioneer, this booster uh, turning critic. So the headline of your story is self-driving cars are starting to look like a $100 billion bust. You talk about Waymo cars getting confused by things as simple as traffic cones. What's the real outlook? When are they when are they going to be hitting the roads or or are they ever? Well, you know what we've heard from the the kind of industry Waymo, Cruise and so on is basically it's been 2 years out uh, for like the last 10 years. I mean, you know, even going all the way back to like 2010, 2011, 2012 when uh, Google at the time was unveiling these cars, they were t saying, "Oh, it can handle any road." And then we saw Chris Ermson who was running the program for a while say that his child who was 11 was going to have uh, you know, his driver's was never going to have a driver's license, and we're kind of still in that place where where it's this kind of near-term uh, thing, but it's all very vague. And what what, what Lewandowski is saying, and what what you hear if you talk to people who are outside of the of the sort of core of this industry, is that we're talking decades. We're not talking years. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't advances, there aren't important technology happening, that some of this stuff won't, in fact, change the world. It's just that the full-blown, you know level four, level five autonomy, this is the idea that you get in a car without a steering wheel, that is looking increasingly shaky. And, and I think one of the reasons you see that really the only two companies who are, who are putting huge amounts of money into this, Waymo and Cruise, both have you know, big corporate backing. Waymo in the case of Google Alphabet, and Cruise, of course, is GM. Quickly, Max, our kids are still going to get driver's licenses. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think unfortunately that's the case. Um, uh, now, th again, there are huge improvements, and I think uh, on the kind of uh, advanced driver assistance technology, our kids will maybe drive in much safer cars. Um, we're seeing that, you know, Tesla's autopilot, even though they, they market that as self driving, but, but it's really a, a really great uh, driver assistance technology, as well as GM Super Cruise and others. So cars are definitely getting safer. There are uh, technological advances, but this kind of crazy steering wheel free future um, looks increasingly shaky. Hmm. All right. Take note, parents everywhere. Max Chafkin, excellent story by you. You can check it out in Bloomberg Business Week. Thanks, Max. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. We're going to get back 
to September payrolls coming out Friday, but jobs news has been moving markets for months as the Fed works to cut inflation. Thursday, no exception. Tech again in the headlines. Our Ed Ludlow back with the top tech stories. Ed. Yeah, believe it or not, Em, there was news in the last 24 hours that had nothing to do with Elon Musk. And it was very focused on jobs, as you say. You see Amazon softer by half a percent. They're adding 150,000 workers for the holiday period, same as they added in 2021, temporary workers to handle that demand. But what's interesting is it's a, a sign the demand's there. Bloomberg Scoop, General Electric, cutting hundreds of jobs, according to sources, in its manufacturing unit that's responsible for making wind turbines for wind energy because the demand is gone. And of course, Peloton, we've been speaking about during the show. I find Amazon really interesting, right? We're all braced for payrolls data on Friday. There's mixed signals about what the jobs market is like right now in the United States. But it's a big vote of confidence in consumer demand that Amazon is bringing in the same reinforcement for this holiday shopping period that it did in 2021, even at a time where sellers and merchants on the Amazon.com platform are worried. They're bracing for a slowdown in consumer spending due to inflation and perhaps some pull forward of that spending to earlier in the year. You see the details of what Amazon's doing behind me. But you know, remember, between March and June of this year, largely through attrition, they reduced headcount by around 100,000 to undo the investment of the pandemic era. Then this Peloton, another 500 jobs to be cut from Peloton. I make that around 4,600 so far this year. Is this the final step in Barry McCarthy's plan to turn around Peloton's fortunes? Of course, we've all gone back to the gym, some of us, some of us back to the office using our Pelotons less, but they've had to reduce headcount in a period where growth has gone and they're pivoting to a more asset-like model. So really interesting to see what doing in this climate, particularly when it comes to the jobs front. All right. Ad Lanzo. Thank you. Meantime, Google announced a suite of new products at the annual Made by Google event. Along with the Pixel 7 and Pixel Watch, Google teased an upcoming Pixel tablet to take on Apple's iPad and Amazon's Echo devices. Let's bring in Rick Osterloh, Google Senior Vice President of Devices and Services. Rick, great to have you back with us. So uh, new phones and features uh, and, you know, well, we're, we're in a very difficult economic time where consumers are under pressure, paying more for everything from gas to groceries. What's your argument to customers about why they should upgrade their smartphones now? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Emily. And secondly, we're really excited about our announcements today um, for a variety of reasons. But we, we believe that personal computing technology like phones, watches, uh, and earphones um, and tablets are just absolutely essential computing capabilities. So while I, I know that um, right now a lot of people might be concerned with all the economic uncertainty, I think it's really critical uh, that, that these products are in market and in the hands of users. Um, we're also offering uh, some new phone capabilities with our Pixel 7 and 7 Pro that I think people find just a terrific value. We have our Pixel 7 product we introduced today at $599 and a Pixel 7 Pro with some awesome capabilities for $899, which is significantly less than other options in the market. So we wanted to make sure that people had uh, some great options to choose from in today's economic uncertainty. So let's talk about some of the new tech. You brought back Face Unlock after you actually removed it a few years back. Why is that? 
Um, well, you know, we have a variety of ways to unlock your phone. We wanted to make sure that we had a really convenient way for people to unlock their phone. The primary way is through a fingerprint sensor, which is right on the display. It makes it really easy to unlock your phone. But also for convenience, we've added the ability, just using the front-facing camera and a lot of our AI technology, to be able to unlock the phone using your face as well. So that uh, added element makes it much easier to do something that you probably do 100 times a day. Let's talk then about your projections. There's this report from Nikkei that you're hoping to double pixel sales in 2023 compared to 2022. Is that the goal? And given these economic times, what makes you think that's realistic? Well, I mean, I think our products just keep getting better and better. And so our aim is certainly to continue to grow our business here. You know, we don't comment on exact projections, but certainly we have been growing and our intention is to continue to do so. And we're doing that through innovations in AI making sure that our products are more and more helpful for our users using our underlying AI technology. And then also by expanding our portfolio, we now have three terrific phone products with 6A, 7, 7 Pro uh, hitting the market. And then we, we introduced the Pixel Watch for the first time. Um, and we also have uh, Pixel Buds Pro earphones. And, and the, this combination of technology, we think, is what people are looking for right now. So hang on, Rick. We're getting some breaking news out of the Elon Musk Twitter saga. Uh, the judge in Delaware uh, has said the deal must close by 5 p.m. on October 28th, has paused the court case until October 28th. Remember, we were expecting them to go to trial on October 17th. Uh, the judge saying if a deal isn't closed by October 28th, they will set a trial date of November. We're going to get a little more context in a moment. Rick, uh, let's talk a little bit about what you see as the long-term viability of the hardware business. How much runway do you think you have, given you know all this competition? I mentioned Apple, I mentioned Amazon. Given all this competition out there. Oh, well, I mean, this is a very long-term investment for the company. And the market we're pursuing is absolutely enormous. Um, but probably most importantly, this space of delivering personal technology to our users is is absolutely critical for end users. Um, and, and we see it as a great way for people to experience the very best technology that Google has to offer. We literally take our latest AI research and machine learning models and bring that right to our users with Pixel. And so this we see this as absolutely essential. All right. Google Senior Vice President of Devices and Services, Rick Osterloh, with all the news from the uh, Made by Google event. Thank you, Rick, for joining us. Uh, I want to get back to that Twitter news. Uh, the judge halting the court case until October 28th, saying the deal must close by 5 p.m. So, Ed, if you're going to Delaware, it's not going to be until October 28th, uh, potentially at least. Uh, talk to us about the latest headlines. What are we hearing? Yeah, so the deal has until 5 p.m. October 28th to close, as you say. If the deal does not close by that period, Kathleen St. Jude McCormick, the Chancery judge in Delaware overseeing this M&A case, this dispute, says that she will go to trial in November. So so, you know, the door is still open to kind of any outcome here. You see Twitter shares rising in after hours. We're up about 1.2% right now. We were as high as, as high as 3%. And remember, with that share pushing higher, it's kind of an indication from Wall Street that they see the chances of this deal now happening. Twitter indicated in their court filing earlier on Thursday that they wanted this to happen much sooner. They said that Musk could close as soon as next week by the 10th. The 28th date was the one that was originally put out by the 
the Musk team in their court filing where they've requested that the stay of proceedings happen, that this trial be paused. Remember, Twitter opposed that in a court filing later in the day Thursday. Twitter said, we do not want to pause these proceedings. But Kathleen St. Jude McCormick, the Chancery judge, appears to have sided with Team Musk at this time. The judge saying she'll set a date for November for a trial if the deal doesn't close by October 28th. There's still this contingency of the debt financing. Are we to understand by this that um, that's not going to be an issue or do we believe that's basically the main issue that remains? Yeah, so in the first court filing Thursday, Musk's team said that Twitter you know, wouldn't say yes to the deal, that they were hung up on this idea of the debt not being there, uh, which Musk's team kind of indicated was not a problem. In the filing that Twitter's team gave us later, they said that Musk could not even discuss closing the deal with the banks. You know, the concern is that Musk has this $12.5 billion of, of debt uh, split between a $6.5 billion loan, $3 billion of unsecured, $3 billion of secured bonds. There's also a revolving credit line in there as well. Times have changed since that deal and that package was agreed in, in April. Um, and so I, I guess the concern in the background is, is the viability of that debt. You know, here at Bloomberg, our, our expert analysts, our, our, our beat reporters have dug into this issue. And it's kind of unthinkable that the banks would walk away from giving Musk and Musk's team the money or the proceeds from that debt, you know, it would be a big hit to their credibility for one. Um, but the banks do then need to go to Wall Street and sell the debt to institutional investors. So clearly, Twitter, if they don't have concerns about the debt, I think they still have concerns about what Musk's true intentions are. That much we can gather from the court filings Thursday. So, Ed, what's your hunch? Are you going to Delaware? You're asking me if we're going to Delaware. That's the question. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Look, we're not going to Delaware on October 17th. Certainly Twitter employees I've spoken to this week, many of them outlined early, they thought this was a play for time by Musk to go back to the original offer. We don't know. We don't know what the psychology around this is from Elon Musk. But Kathleen St. Jude McCormick has made a very fast decision. I don't think anyone expected her to take both court filings, one asked to say, one didn't, and then decide this quick. That's where we stand. We do not know, except that it's still not a done deal. Uh, okay, Ed, thank you for the play-by-play, -play, as always. Coming up, what we do know about the executive who withdrew millions before Celsius's bankruptcy. Another scandal unfolding. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. 
the people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Time now for our crypto report. And remember, Celsius, well, we're now learning the former CEO of the bankrupt crypto lender withdrew millions just before stopping customer withdrawals. Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld here to explain. Katie, what do we know? Well, just to recap the timeline a little bit, like you said, we had the former CEO withdraw about $10 million in May. He wasn't alone. You also had co-founder Dan Leon and chief technology officer Nuke Goldstein also withdraw millions. That was in May. And if we remember, in June, Celsius halted customer withdrawals and then ultimately filed for bankruptcy in July. So the timing here, obviously, a bit of a question mark as we work through this bankruptcy. And and we'll see how this shakes out. And just to remind the audience, Celsius was one of the highest flying lenders, obviously promising returns, trying to take on uh, actual traditional banks by saying, you can invest your coins, receive interest on them. Obviously, that came crashing down in a pretty spectacular way. And uh, this slow drip of news has been just fascinating to watch as we get in closer and deeper into this bankruptcy. So uh, it's hard to believe anything could be more exciting or volatile uh, in terms of news than crypto markets, but Elon Musk and Twitter have given us just that. That said, there is still action in crypto markets. I know you've been watching Bitcoin and how uh, it's been related to the market rally or not. What trends are you pulling out? It is pretty amusing that crypto is sort of the ho-hum market right now. But a trend that I have noticed <laughs> is that actually it's the crypto equities that have been outperforming this week. You have Bitcoin holding up relatively well amid all the volatility that we've seen in the stock market. Bitcoin is about 4% higher over the past four days or so. But if you look at MicroStrategy, MicroStrategy Coinbase, Marathon, they're all up by double digits, which is pretty uh, amazing to me. Part of the reason could just be that they fell much much more dramatically than Bitcoin itself. For example, if you look at Bitcoin, it's down about 57% year to date. If you look at Coinbase, that number is 71%. So it could be a function of the fact that they fell further. They have more room to rise, but it's definitely a trend to keep an eye on amid this mild re resilience, I would almost call it, in the crypto market. So what are you going to be watching in the, in the U.S. overnight? Can I shamelessly plug something? <laughs> Of course. That's I'm going to go for. ahead and do that. So Crypto IRL, it's a <laughs> show that I host with Tim Stenovic. It's going to be on Quick Take at 8.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern tonight, 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Friday night. Uh, we're going to dig into, after this amazing drawdown that we've seen, Bitcoin down 57% this year alone, who's going to lead the rebuild? Who's going to be the winner? Who's going to be the loser? And whether that's going to be sort of the crypto-native companies or 
or whether we're going to see traditional finance come in here. All right. So my bet is that's not going to be ho-hum at all. Uh, excited to see it. Katie Greifeld, uh, Crypto IRL. Take a watch. Thank you, Katie. sign that labor demand in the U.S. may be starting to moderate. Unemployment applications rose more than expected last week by 29,000. This after the Labor Department said that the number of available jobs in August decreased by a million. This as the return to the office is waning or ebbing, let's say, nationwide. Last week was the second straight week where office occupancy barely budged after shooting up right after Labor Day. For more on the labor market and the future of work, I want to bring in Fran Katsuda, Cisco Executive Vice President and Chief People Policy and Purpose Officer. Fran, it's great to have you back with us. So it's been called the Great Resignation. Now we're hearing the Great Realignment. We're hearing about quiet quitting. What, in your view, is actually happening within the workforce? Thank you, Emily. I'm so glad to be with you. I think what we're talking about is an amazing opportunity to really think about work. I think sometimes when we talk about this phase, we're so focused on whether people are working from home or from the office that we don't look at this opportunity from a future of work perspective. As you know, at Cisco, we have worked hybrid actually before the pandemic. We've had a lot of flexibility. And what we see at this moment is that one of the most critical elements about work is inclusion and flexibility and really understanding there isn't a one-size-fits-all to the amazing work that we have to do. And if we're able to intersect flexibility uh, with the work and innovation and connection that we're building, it can be an amazing opportunity and not something to dread. So give me some specifics about how Cisco is changing its strategy now. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're coming out of, of the pandemic, um, but it's hard to know where new normal is really going to be. Yeah, so the first thing that I would say is I think all companies are still learning and evolving. And the way that we're handling this at Cisco is in a very decentralized way. We've asked every leader at Cisco to really work with their team to figure out against the backdrop of the work and how people are at their best to make arrangements. And for some people, Emily, that means that maybe they're coming in once or twice a week. Sometimes it's a little bit more. But because from a Cisco perspective, we have been doing this for, for so long, what we can see is there's amazing opportunities. We see that career trajectory for people, regardless of where they're working, can be equal. And we also see another opportunity from a Cisco perspective, which is really all about the tech. What we see from our customers is they want to have an experience for their people that is similar, whether they're sitting in the office or sitting at home. And I think the other interesting thing right now is that we're seeing inclusion really intersect technology in a very different way, where the tech is working harder to make sure that every person is pulled into a meeting, innovation, a brainstorming session on a whiteboard. And I think that's going to be critical for all companies moving forward. Well, that's certainly an opportunity uh, for Cisco's WebEx. I'm curious for your take on San Francisco's downtown, which still hasn't recovered from the pandemic and uh, seems to be coming back much more slowly than other U.S. cities. Do you think it ever will be the same? And what does that mean for, for tech culture? I don't think it'll be the same, and I think that's part of the problem. I think that a lot of companies are stepping into this wanting to go back, and what we're realizing at Cisco is that 
we have to invite our people back into the office. Right now, Emily, we're talking about our leaders as having a new role, which is these event managers that are really thinking about that connection. I think the amazing thing is that all companies want the connection, they want to have the culture, but asking people to come in and sit on their own while they do their video calls or their emails just doesn't make sense to our people. And so I think it's going to be really the focus on uh, the anniversary celebration, uh, the brainstorming session, maybe the community give back that will bring our people to the office in a different way. And I think we just have to lean into that trend and try new things until we find what works. So is the Silicon Valley kind of standard of, you know, office gyms and catered food and on-site laundry, is that era over? Oh goodness, that's a really tough question. I will tell you that at the moment, I don't think those perks are as valuable as they once were. Uh, what we're hearing from our people is they want to work in an environment where they can contribute, where they can have impact, where they can decide on a week-to-week -week basis whether or not they're coming in. And so I do think there's going to be a new set of benefits and perks that are more meaningful to our people. It's interesting, Emily, because when I talk to my peers across industries and for those companies that are mandating that their people come back, they're sharing that their people are still not coming back. And so it's, it's not these perks that will bring them back. I think it's going to be one another. It's going to be teams and really having a career that fits your goals. All right. Fran Katsudas, Executive Vice President of Cisco. Fran, good to have you back with us. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on the changing lay of the land. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We've got a great show coming up Friday. Sarah Kunst of Clio will be joining us to talk about tech sentiment in response to the U.S. jobs report. And don't forget to check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.